chapter 18. Enjoyed the uh, Sunday school lesson this morning. Huh? Yeah, huh? They say nothing's new under the sun, and how, how true that really is. You know, think about politics today and how that's what they were doing in Jesus' day. Exact same thing that they're doing today. Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. It says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but after he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. Cannot God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. And he he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. He prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself should be abased, and he that humbleth himself should be exalted. And they brought unto him also infants, and he would, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. <clears throat> Excuse me, I titled the message this morning, The Prayer of the Faithful. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege that we have to open your precious word. And Lord, I pray as we look into the word of God today that we'd be encouraged and challenged in our prayer life. Pray that we take great encouragement in the fact that you desire to hear and to answer your pray the prayers of your people according to your will. So help help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse eight, our Lord makes what would be considered by many to be a rather dramatic statement or question. And he says, basically, when he returns in his second coming, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find it? Now, the, the phrase here, when he find faith, is, the word find is a thing sought for. The word faith is not a reference to personal faith, but to those who believe in the whole body of revealed truth. Or, we would, we would say it this way, or hold to New Testament or Bible Christianity. 
Will there be people that really hold to the teachings and the instruction, the commands that God gives in His Word concerning New Testament church Christianity? Will there be people like that on the earth? That was, that was the question he's really asking. You know, Jude, in one, Jude 1 verse 3 tells us, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you to as you'd earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So Jude there is referring to that kind of faith or, or the, the kind of people that really believe and practice what the New Testament teaches concerning Bible Christianity or, what a, or how a church should function according to the scriptures. As Brother Hoyle mentioned that this morning about you know, a fellow he knew and he named him, uh, Monroe, down in uh, South Carolina, made the statement, he said, I can't do what you do here. It wouldn't, it wouldn't you know, and, I, and I've had people say to me, uh, I had a pastor ask me one time, oh, he asked a question, uh, something about should women be in the military? I think it was a question. And I said, no, they should not be in combat. And uh, he said, and this is what he said, I couldn't preach things like that in my You know why? Because he alluded to 90% of them, more people. See, they don't hold to New Testament Christianity. Uh, so in the time of Jesus, you know, the time of, that Jesus returns is described in the Bible as days of departing from the faith. Uh, for example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by word, or neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, at the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So, Jesus said, before I come back, before I return, there's going to be a departure, a falling away. There's going to be a departure from the truth, from the scriptures. Timothy tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, well, actually it's Paul. Actually, it's really the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, This know also in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, pride, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. So there's going to be this great departure from the truth, there are going to be few that practice New Testament Christianity. You know, what, what distinguishes a, a New Testament, what distinguishes New Testament Christianity, or the faith once delivered, I've spoken of but, uh, in Jude, from the rest of Christendom, quote unquote? Or what are called churches? There's a lot of churches that aren't really churches. It's their practice. It's not their statement of faith. It's their practice. 
You, know, you can go to websites of churches and look at their statement of faith and you think, oh, they're a lot like us. Or they're ta- practicing New Testament Christianity. But if you were to be there, and I've done this, and I know some of them know the ones I look up, and know their practice, it doesn't match their statement. So it's their practice. It's, it's salvation. You know, uh, several things about their practice. Of course, salvation is repentance and faith, through repentance and faith. There's a, there must be a biblical baptism. That, talks, that, of course, refers to the mode or the method and also the authority of the church. A saved church membership. And this is the one that really sets, the ones, sets you apart. Church discipline. Church discipline. Which means they practice separation. Or, to put it in everyday practical terms, they hold to biblical standards of conduct. That's really what that boils down to. Biblical standards of conduct. It's, it's, so it's really a rejection of easy believism, which, is, which, which, which the, its fruit is a lack of standards of conduct. You know, this is New Testament Christianity. This is what Baptists for thousands of years have held to. The Waldensians, in his book, The Waldensians, by Ted Alexander said this about the Waldensians. The Waldensians not only practiced Baptist baptism by immersion, they also taught that one could be saved without baptism. The Waldensians embraced the doctrine of the Trinity of God. Uh, the Waldensians embraced the doctrine of salvation by repentance and faith. Uh, the Waldensians embraced Baptist views as the doctrines of church memberships and church polity. Uh, And he, go, he said the Waldensians had a powerful organization, organization in the church. They exercised church discipline and were stringent on the subject of personal separation and standards of conduct. And, and, and he says uh, they practiced church discipline, preached, and expected personal separation, had rules against drinking, rules against dancing, with an explanation as to why. That's the best explanation I've ever seen. And they even had... Can you imagine this? Courtship rules with parental oversight. Hmm. And he says at this point, the proper question to, to ask may not be, were the Waldensians independent Baptists? The question should probably be, are independent Baptists in 2016 anything like their holy Waldensian forebears? You know, this is, we're talking about churches back around from, from the 400s to the 1500 A.D that practice these things, just like things that we hold to today. So this is what we're referring to when referring to, and, and, and again, the thing that sets, sets most of us apart is the area of church discipline. I have a good friend, pastor up in Virginia, and he, he goes to uh, sword conferences and, and a lot of these preachers' conferences around, the co- not all over the country, if, when they're in the area. He doesn't agree with everything or hold everything, but he goes to them. And he said he was at one of them, and they had this question and answer session. And on the panel, to answer the questions, were these prominent preachers. Paul Chappell was one of them. Uh, I think Clarence Sexton was one of them, and several others. Anyway, he asked the unthinkable question. What do you do with church discipline? He said, got quiet. 
Ronnie Paul Chapel said, we don't. We don't. Just let it go, and sooner or later they'll leave. Friends, that's not biblical. You're not dealing with people's sin. You're not helping them by letting them go in their sin. And then they'll go to another church and do the same thing there. No, so Jesus asked that question. But you know, we are to hold to the whole counsel of God. You know, First Corinthians, Acts chapter 20, verse 27 says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, and in the context of this statement that Jesus makes, that's by the way, just all introduction is free. Uh, in, in the context of that statement Jesus makes, he's, the subject is prayer. You see, prayer is a living demonstration of holding to or accepting the faith once delivered unto the saints. Now, I want to give you three things about prayer this morning. First of all, prayer demonstrates faith in the character of God. Notice verses 2 through 8 again. Saying, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear along with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Now, I want a couple, couple things here I want to uh, define. That when, when, it, when, when the, he makes a statement about the judge, and this is kind of humorous, you might say, think, but in verse 5, by her continual coming, she weary me. The, the words weary me mean to wear out, to strike under the eyes, to bruise. We would say it this way. Give him a pair of black eyes. I imagine the disciples must have chuckled when Jesus said that. Now, it wasn't that she was literally going to blacken his eyes. But if he didn't avenge her, it would leave a blemish on his political record. Not avenging this widow. So he was glad to oblige her for his own sake. You know, the unjust judge only reluctantly answered the woman's request. And Jesus didn't, didn't give us this parable to say that God was like the unjust judge, but unlike him. God's not like this unjust judge. God loves to answer our prayers. And, you know, he even helps us when we pray. Romans 8, 26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. We know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So really, God helps us with our prayers. Sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. 
And the Lord helps us. See, God desires, our God is unlike this unjust judge. Our God desires to hear and to answer our prayer. And us bringing our prayers demonstrates faith in Him in that respect. You know, Psalm 50, 15 says, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Psalm 55, 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Jeremiah 33 uh, one through three, moreover the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, and the Lord that formed it, to establish it, the Lord is his name, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. You know, we like to pull that verse out, verse three, call unto me, and I will answer thee, but we forget the context of sin. Jeremiah is in prison. And the Lord says to, he says, he says, uh, uh, thus saith the Lord the maker thereof the Lord that formed it to establish it he says call unto me and I will answer thee Jeremiah and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not you know, though, and Jeremiah you know, made his cry to the Lord and though the nation was completely destroyed Jeremiah was preserved Psalm 84.11 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. You see, God desires to hear. God is anxious and eager to answer our prayers. Notice verses 6 and 7 again. It says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with him, and again, the bear, the, the the phrase there, bear long, means he's long suffering, or indulgent to them, or graciously lenient. Now, go to the Psalms for a minute, if you would. Psalm eighty-eight. I want you to think about that. That God is graciously lenient with His own. Psalm 88, verse 15. Um, I got the wrong verse. Anyway, go, okay, go to Psalm 103. I'm not sure what I was... It was supposed to be in Psalm 188, but it's not. Psalm 103, we'll get the idea here. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. And I want you to notice this phrase, he hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Now, now let me ask you this question. Now, thinking about the fact that the Lord doesn't deal with us after our sins. According to the law of God, 
What should have been done to David and Bathsheba? Should have been stoned. Both of them. Taken out and stoned. But the Lord said, I have put away thy sin. You know, instead of them being stoned, they were blessed with children. Yeah, they had one child die, the first one. But they were blessed with other children, of whom was Solomon, the king, and Nathan, another son, through whom Mary's ancestry can be traced, through whom Jesus, the Christ came. You know, God made promises to Abraham. Did Abraham attempt to botch God's plan? Yeah, he did. He did. He grew impatient. And he attempted to botch God's plan. But in spite of that, God honored and kept his promise to Abraham. Gave him a son. You know, how many times do we, in seeking what's right to us, interfere with God's will and way? Yet he loves us. How many times we seeking to do what we think's right go the wrong way and sin against him? Or how 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 often do we do or do we regularly communicate with him? I remember Dr. Wayne Van Gelder Sr. telling a story one time. He grew up in Florida. I think he grew up in Florida. He lived in Florida for quite a few years and then moved to the Midwest. But anyway, he was telling a story about, you know, of course, they, hurricanes were a common thing in Florida. And, and uh, this one older lady, she prayed and prayed and prayed. And he said he was talking about, there was this preacher, uh, Pastor Sims was his name. And, uh, and he went to visit this elderly lady whose house was destroyed by the hurricane. And she said, Pastor, I prayed and prayed and prayed the Lord would restore my house, and it still got destroyed. And, and the preacher said, well, maybe he was too busy listening to his regular customers. You see, do we, are we faithful in our prayers? And yet God desires to hear and answer our prayers. Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Psalm 100, verse 5, The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. Uh, Psalm 135, 3, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto the name, for it is pleasant. Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies over all of his works. So, or Jeremiah 33, 11 says, The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, Voice of them that shall say, Praise the Lord of hosts. The Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Now them that shall bring this sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause, I will cause to return the captivity to the land as at the first, saith the Lord. Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Psalm 72, 18 says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. Now think about that phrase. God only does wondrous things. And Psalm 84 says, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. See, we have a God, unlike this judge, 
who desires, he's eager to answer, to hear and to answer our prayers. You see, the judge was unfair, the God is fair. You know, our God is a righteous, wonderful judge. You know, we can come to a judge of perfect good character. We can come to a judge who loves to care for his children. We can come to a judge who is kind and gracious. We come to a judge who knows us. We come to this judge with an advocate, a friend who will plead our case before the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the judge with promises to encourage us. We come to the judge with a right of constant access. And we come to a judge who has a personal interest in our case. You see, prayer demonstrates our faith in the character of God to keep his promises. But prayer requires, also requires faith in his word. I want you to notice two things here. First of all, uh, it humbly accepts the truth of his word. Notice in verse 13 it says, And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, he is accepting what the Lord says about us and our helpless estate. You know, why is it? Why is it that prayer is, seems difficult? Why is it people don't want to pray? The same reason men don't want to ask directions when they're lost. see, prayer requires that we humbly accept the truth about his word. And the truth is, we need help. Your prayer is really acknowledging that I need help beyond myself. I need help beyond myself. We see a couple of illustrations of this in the scripture. In Judges 10.10, the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee. Both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And in verse 15 it says, And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. In 2 Chronicles 14:11 it says, And Asa cried the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee and in thy name. We go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let no man prevail against thee. He says, we have no power. Help us. See, prayer acknowledges, I need help. It's acknowledging, I need help. But we human beings don't like to ask for help. Prayer also accepts God's will as right and best for our life. You know, sometimes we have desires or ambitions that may not be God's will. And we need to be willing and desire God to answer our prayers according to His will, not ours. 
according to his will, not ours. I've heard people say something like this. Oh, I pray every day. You, maybe you've witnessed to them. And, and, you, and, and you ask them, oh, I pray every day. Well, they pray for something they want. It's obvious they're not praying for God's will because they're not doing it. Not doing the basic things of obedience. Your first John 5, 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, what's where we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desired of him. You see, we, when we pray, we, we need to accept God's will as right and best. Because it is best. And we need to be willing to accept that. You know, a good example of being willing to accept what is right was Jesus. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. But he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. We have to be willing to also to accept God's timing. Notice verse 5 says, Yet because this widow troubleth me, I will venture, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And again, verse 7 and shall not God avenge his own elect which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Spurgeon said this, quote, Too many prayers are like little boys, like boys' runaway knocks, given, and then the giver is away before the door can be opened, end quote. Now, you wouldn't do this today. You might get shot. But I, an old fellow I used to work for said, he remembers when he was a kid, he said, we ran everywhere. And he said, we'd run across the neighbor's porch and yell like an Indian and take off. You know, all in fun. And nobody gave two thoughts to it, you know. If you ran across my porch and, porch and yelled like an Indian, I'd probably come out with the gun now. And, you know, people would do things like knock on your door and run away. And he said, that's what money people's prayers are like. They knock on the door and they run away. Well, God can answer it. You know, Abraham asked the Lord for an heir. How long did it take him to get that heir? About 25 years. See, we have to be willing to accept God's timing. It says, continual coming. And then a third thing I want you to notice. Sincere prayer demonstrates the simplicity of children. Since he brings up the subject of children in this passage, it says, and they brought in him, verse 15, also infants that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus uses the example of little children in several places. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 18, in verses 1 through 4, and then also in chapter 19, but Matthew 18 says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, 
Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whosoever shall receive one such little child, my name receiveth me. And again in chapter 19, verse 13, Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked him. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, forbid them not, to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and, and departed thence. Now, a lot of people take, this, take these verses and say, See, you need to have a children's ministry and get them children saved as early as possible. That's not what this is teaching. That's not what this is teaching. What it's teaching is, we need to have the simplicity of little children if we're going to have the faith that God wants us to have. Simplicity means absence of luxury, pretense, ornament, deceit, or guile. And we have an example of someone who's full of himself. That's really what the opposite of simplicity. He, he, he's got pretense. In fact, Jesus made reference to that in, in the Pharisees. In, in verses 11 and 12, here, here's an example of somebody who, who does not, it really means, simplicity means it's plainness. The publican was plain. He was plain. Simple and plain. The Pharisee was all pretense. Verse 11, 12 says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this publican. Fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and, and so on. So, so he, was, he was full of pretense. He was full of ornament. Mark chapter 12, verse 38, 40 Jesus said, and he said unto them his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. See, the, pray, the, the Pharisee's prayer was just a pretense. He wanted people to notice him. You know, Jesus talked about how they would pray long prayers on street corners to be seen of men. It's all pretense, just a formality. And I'll share with you about going to a Presbyterian church and how they would recite the Lord's Creed. It's all a pretense. like putting on an ornament. All to be seen. Didn't mean anything. One commentator said this, quote, words are cumbersome in prayer. It often happens that an abundance of words reveal the scarcity of desires. Verbiage in public prayer is generally nothing better than a miserable fig leaf with which to cover up the nakedness of an unwakened soul. Let us keep our long prayers for the secret closet and our short ones for the public gallery, lest we come under the condemnation of the man who stood thus with himself. Unquote. Of course, he's referring to the Pharisee. Now, we need to be 
sincere and simple. What that really means is just share what's on your heart. Be honest with the Lord. Be plain with the Lord. I mean, if you're frustrated, you might as well be, be open, plain, and tell them your frustrations. Job did. Job was frustrated. You know, he believed God, yet he was frustrated because he didn't know why this was happening. Just don't question it. As to say that, you don't, that he doesn't know what he's doing, because he does. Job did not question God. Or say that God didn't know what he was doing. But he did question, why is this happening? You see, the Pharisee, to, 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 be, to show pretense is parading, is like parading your own virtues. And this Pharisee was really making God his debtor. After all, I am so good. You've got to help me. Or you've got to do things for me. Or you've got to give me a good life. Or, you know, whatever. No. You know, God wants simple sincerity in our prayers. Nothing fancy, just plain spoken truth. Hebrews, all right, conclude with this. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then. You see, the point of all this is, God, unlike that unjust judge, desires, is eager and anxious to hear and to answer our prayers. He wants us to bring our petitions to Him. He wants us to bring our thanksgiving to Him. It, he is never too busy to hear. It delights him that we come to him. Of course, we need to come to him sincerely. But again, Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, God tells us, invites us to boldly. The word boldly means free and fearless confidence. Cheerful courage. Assurance. God delights to hear the prayers of his people. I think it's, I'm trying to remember, I think it, in Revelation it tells us about the incense that comes up. And, it's, and, it just, and it says it's the prayers of the saints. You see, church, God desires 
He's eager and he delights in hearing the prayers of his own. It's his desire to answer. Sometimes he may test you. That's where perseverance comes in. But God desires that we bring our petitions to him. Are we faithful? Do we have confidence in him? Are we praying according to his will? Might God help us as individuals, as a church, to seek to be faithful in our prayer life, knowing that we have a God who desires to hear and answer.